Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you again so much for an incredible surah. Um, does anyone here have any questions to start us off? I have a question. Bring Henry. Henry has the perpetual question. Where's my chicken? So, we talked about in verse 22 uh, how to not. Um, focus on results and, uh, you know, kind of commit to principle and this has now come up also in several tafasir, the idea that, I mean the, the Quran, I mean the surah I think also mentions it, that only those who have, you know, khashya are going to listen to you, um, etc. Uh, so there's certain people that are going to be predisposed and then certain people that are like no matter what they're always going to be resistant um, and my, my question is like how like does this apply also to Muslims themselves in the sense you know someone can be born Muslim or just kind of oh. go through the process and uh, they still they're you know they're, they're not receptive to messages and then also like related to this is the idea that um, like God expects that it's, it's always going to be a minority of people who are going to kind of be receptive like this and then you know also at the same time so many people speak about the idea of the jama'ah and like holding on to the jama'ah etc that the, the, that the truth will always reside yeah, with the jama'ah yeah. so my, my question then is how is jama'ah understood in light of these verses you know yeah. because you know we know like for example Ibn Taymiyyah said you know the jama'ah could be with just one person a single person yeah. um, so like what what is the meaning of you know like this yeah, yeah. of course that, that's really yeah, yeah I mean yeah I mean the, the question is that often the, the Quran um, acknowledges that that most people even if you you no matter what how much you try most people will not believe and that it often talks about the truth as something that is um, going to be followed by a minority of people but at the same time, in Islamic theology, there is an emphasis on the jama'ah or uh, the so-called mainstream, that the or some people say the majority, that you follow the what the jama'ah wants or the majority wants um, as the mainstream as the possessors of truth. Um, and then at the same time, what Rami was noting is that there are theologians like Ibn Taymiyyah who said that the mainstream could actually be, be represented by a single individual, that it's not an issue of numbers, but that um, 
at times a single individual could be, represent the actual mainstream and the rest of the population are deluded. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's a very big topic, but um, how to summarize it? The concept of, of Jama'ah um, was always contested and always debated in the Islamic tradition. The, 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 whole, the whole idea of Al-Sunnah wa Jama'ah as the, the mainstream representing the truth. And often the assertion of Al-Sunnah wa Jama'ah was, was made in response to what were seen as deviant groups like Shia or the Khawarij or the Ismailis. Um, so there is the theological slash political assertion of, of the claim of Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah. And there is, there's the ijma' in law, which is completely different because it's, it's a completely technical function and it, it work. It, and a lot of times people confuse the two because ijma' in law is an instrumentality of law. Uh, while in uh, theology, especially theology in different historical periods, it is often claimed as an ideological tool and as a political tool. But the Quranic perspective, it is fair to say that the Quran always is um, encourages the individual to pursue the truth individually, to believe in the truth, and to declare the truth that they see to be right. And to have the courage to, um, and sometimes the, 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 the goal to, to believe that they see the truth and that the majority of people fail to see the truth. Now, this doesn't sit, always doesn't sit comfortably with the more ideological function of Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah, ideological slash theological slash political function. Um, and that, you know, you see that exemplified in the these occasions where there are uh, um, trials for Zandaka in the Islamic tradition, and often these trials were would would uh, would actually be unsuccessful. I mean, the the halaj situation was the exception; it wasn't the rule. And the reason it, they were not su successful is they have a ideologically they 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 have a very problematic position in the Islamic tradition that to the the very idea of to to put someone on trial for heretical views, if they are 
declaring these views sincerely and honestly and referring to their own evidence for these views. I think that there is a very big difference between um, the, uh, the, the morality of the when it comes to the ethical, to the ethical, to the levels of ethics and morality, uh, it, I think we would have a nearly impossible time constructing a case for snuffing out individual moral ethical convictions in favor of populism, but. In law, because Islam generated a state and an empire, in law and in politics, they developed the instrumentalities for reproducing conformity and resisting dissent. And that's not surprising. In the modern age, we need, because the, the, the political project has failed, and the legal project doesn't exist, we need to return to the ethics of the Quran. In other words, we need to go back to celebrating individual conviction and sincerity of conviction and to pay attention to the careful construction of arguments and the arguments and nothing but the arguments, the evidence being the yardstick for truth or the lack of it. Any claim of jama'ah in the modern age is tainted by the failure of the political project and the failure of the legal project. Law in the Muslim world today is a hodgepodge of French legal concepts, some British legal ideas, a lot of communist and socialist and Marxist legal ideas mixed in with an Islamic veneer. And politics, we are dominated with the reality of despotism and colonialism and the politics of subaltering cultures defeated, broken cultures. So to appeal to the Jama'a to snuff out dissent in the modern age, I think is a very costly game. We lose, and we lose a great deal. We need to go back to celebrating the pure individual conscience. Um, we can't pretend that it's the same, that we have, that the law is the same and the, 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 the politics is the same when the political reality and the legal reality has completely changed. And we are confronting a situation much more similar to the beginning of Islam in the Meccan period than, than anything. 
And so it behooves us to listen to the message of the Quran very carefully. And you do notice that every time the jama'ah is elicited in the modern age, um, I mean, sometimes I, I value it. So, for instance, when people say, um, cite to the notion of jama'ah to say, uh, we, uh, prayer is a part of Islam because we have Muslims today that, you know. But I think, but, but overall, um, uh, uh, these Muslims who, who try to deconstruct even the very basics of Islam, like prayer. I think in the in the long term, their, the fallacy of their positions is so obvious. So, you know, for all the individuality of Shahrur, for instance, and what he said about extramarital sex and all of that, I think in a, in a matter of just a few years, he's going to be completely forgotten. Uh, nothing is going to remain of Shahrur because he was an, an artificial phenomena sustained by artificial money for artificial political purposes. Um, but we miss out a great deal when we teach people that their individual conscience uh, is not as important as they should be in modern Islam. Um, we don't have a legal system anymore, a, a, a real legal system. We don't have political autonomy anymore. We don't have a khilafah or, 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 or a polity anymore. Um, all we have is our Quran. And we better hold on to that with everything we've got. Because without it, we don't have Islam anymore. Any other questions from here? Um, in the beginning, in, in the first meeting that you had with us before in Halakas, once we got here, you talked about what was lost in transitioning Islamic education to the modern Western form of, of, of academia was this emphasis on self-development and spiritual development and self-purification. And that was, some, that was one of the goals of this project. Right. Um, and so today when you're, when you're talking about the alims responsibility is in understanding the gradations of this current era, I think that I understand that that includes understanding modern, whatever the, um, understanding scientific advancements, understanding geopolitical realities, understanding epistemology and those things. but. Does that also include this aspect of, in other words, are, are the gradations and the grays of life also the impurity that might exist in someone's soul? Because it tends to make the reality of what is good or bad foggy. 
Yeah, I mean, you know... Can you paraphrase that? Uh, 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 okay, to paraphrase that, the, the, when, when we started these halakhas, I, I met with everyone and I told them, we, we talked about the, the, the purposes of this journey. And among the things we talked about is that um, that as we will see in the journey with the Quran, the Quran puts such a heavy emphasis on self-purification, self-purification, and such a heavy emphasis on dhikr, such heavy emphasis on uh, your relationship with Allah. But also, uh, uh, the way that you manifest this relationship, as we repeatedly will see, inshallah, not just in here, but in so many situations, it, it has to translate into a Muslim being a witness unto others. And to witness unto others means that you become an example unto others. And to become an example unto others, you must become a pioneer of goodness, a pioneer of service, a pioneer of honesty, a pioneer of ethics. Can you imagine if the Prophet was told, you were sent as a witness unto them, this ummah, can you imagine if the Prophet is a witness unto us and he's not a moral example? It wouldn't make any sense. We would say, how could he be a witness unto us if he's not a moral example? But then the Quran says in the same context, and this Ummah was sent as a witness unto other nations. So, but the, the question then is, well, when we talk about Alam, in the modern context, the alam that sees the gradations, that sees the complexities, in other words, does this also understand, in the modern context, the gradations of, if you will, psychological makeup and spiritual makeup? Um, one of the things that we often ignore, but if you're a good historian, you'd understand that, that the psychology of human beings differs greatly from one age to another. The human beings that imagine that the earth is held up on the horns of oxen, this belief was not figurative, it was actual. People actually believed that. Or the human beings that believe that if you sailed long enough, you're going to fall off the, the, the edge of the world. Or the human beings that believed that um, you are interacting with jinn all the time and that you can wake up one day and you're married to a jinn. Um, that, was, that was their world. That was their consciousness. That psychology is very different than the psychology of a modern human being who thinks in terms of things like energy and gravity and all, all of that. And alim, when we say understands the gradations, alim who doesn't understand the psychology, not according to naql, 
not according to what he reads in books about what constitutes human beings, but according to the reality that they live in, in the age that they live in. So in other words, to put it very bluntly, someone who says, I am a alim, I am a faqih, but hasn't read modern psychology, to me, is worth nothing. Yes, a modern alim has to study modern psychology. They have to study modern philosophy. They must understand the challenges that confront the modern human being, not the world as it is represented to them in, the, in, in books that were written hundreds of years ago. That puts a great burden on an alim, but that's precisely why an alim was described as inheritors of the prophets. If you are not an alim, what you owe an alim is what you would owe, the type of reverence and respect that you would owe to a prophet. It's very blunt. It's a huge thing. If you malign an alim, that's a huge sin. If you slander a alim, that's a huge sin. If you insult a alim, that's a huge sin. If you... There are... An ummah that doesn't respect its ulama is lost. But, and that's a very big but, it has to be a real alim. And to be a real alim, in this day and age, you have to master so much that's why you don't achieve it over a year or two or three or four or five or ten or twenty. That's why alim has to be an example of piety, an example of faith, an example of knowledge, an example of love of knowledge, and a constant learning machine that never stops learning. That must be an example. It, it, when we lower the standards for what counts as alim, we also deprecated the standards for how you treat alim. And when we deprecated the standards for how you treat alim, we no longer attracted the best minds and the best souls to the, to the realm of alim. It is the losers who became the scholars of Islam. The ones that no one wants. And that is why it has become now, I mean, I'm ashamed to say it, but now a fi'i, even in, in Egyptian, we, we say fi'i. It's not a very, it refers to uh, an azhari alim. It's not a respectful expression. It's like, um, like a loser, bookhead, call him a fi'i. It's shameful. You want, again, I appeal to the kids who keep talking about decolonialism. Rethink things again. We need to elevate our ulama to the status that Allah elevated them to. But we need to demand that our ulama be true ulama. And we need to demand that the best of our minds be the ones who specialize in learning the affairs of our religion. But you can't attract the best of the minds if those who are attracted to the field, we ask them to, to live from one sacrifice to another. 
and they don't have any support. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, there's a reason when we funded our Awqaf and our Awqaf funded our ulama, we started attracting the most gifted intellects like Ibn Rushd, like Al-Ghazali, like Ibn Taymiyyah, like these were the best intellects and they came to, and specialized in, in knowledge. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm accused of dumping on rich people all the time, but I, I, I mean, the Quran says is when, when Allah wants to destroy people, it starts with the rich people. Allah misguides the rich people first, and it's if the rich people are misguided, all else falls. Those who Allah gave wealth to own the keys to our salvation. If they put their money in the right place, things will change. Thank you for all your time and your interpretation of this story. You mentioned um, that Allah has sometimes is communicating with us through the deformities we see in creation. Yes. I wanted to see if you could expand on that a little bit more um, and tell us what are we meant to glean from that communication. Well, there is a... Um, there, there, one part of this, this is, is um, do you know, I, I had an uncle, may Allah bless his soul, who, who suffered from um, Down syndrome. And um, the thing that stayed with me is that in the part where we grew up, which was still influenced by Islamic values, uh, everyone in the neighborhood treated my uncle as a blessing. So they would often say that if you're kind to, to a person with Down syndrome, then Allah blesses you. So people in the neighborhood would actually compete with one another to, they used to call him Sheikh Mahmoud, although, you know, and, and you know, Sheikh Mahmoud came, Sheikh Mahmoud came, and, and the amount of kindness that the neighborhood showed him was remarkable. Unfortunately, my uncle Mahmoud suffered some unkindness in his life. But the unkindness he suffered from his life was from relatives who were westernized, um, in other words, were educated according to Western standards, held Western jobs, made Western money. Um, and that had um, brought to life a lot of what I read that when the fuqaha or the ulama spoke about that if someone is born with any type of deficiency, that person is a test to the entire 
neighborhood, an entire clan, and the entire city, that if you... So we, we didn't have insane asylums until colonialism. The idea of building asylums to put insane people was just... And it was rather people who had mental problems were taken care of by families. And it was affirmed that if you wanted Allah to answer your prayers, you go be kind to someone who's meaning. That's all from that background of ethics. So that's one level that Allah is communicating to us. It is that every time someone is disadvantaged like that is a test to the entire ummah. And unfortunately, it's being lost because I, I've seen how insane asylums are in Cairo and they're horrible. I mean, Western medicine, what it has brought in these horrid places is horrible. Uh, and some of the people that are there are people who have Down syndrome. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, so, but then the other aspect that remarkably you would read, I think, just passages that were well ahead of their time when they say something like, um, they, they had experienced some births where they would, camel would be born with two heads or something like that. Of course, and would die, um, or an extra limb, and then th what was the first thing they would say? They would say, "You must." In the in in Europe, it was always assumed that that's demonic, but it's interestingly in the Islamic civilization, it would say, "You must examine if the waters are poisoned, or if there is poisonous rain falling." which translated to our modern age is environmental contamination. But of course, when we became civilizationally backwards, we started thinking of demons as a source of deformities. Um, so that crept in in later centuries. So every, every, um, unfortunate being is either we must ask how are we responsible or what type of responsibility that places upon us. The idea that it's their problem or it's their family's problem is entirely antithetical to Islamic morality. Um, yeah, even like, you know, we used to call the, like people who were, had a mental handicap or something, we'd say Mus'ad or Mubarak, blessed. And, you know, and it was, it was remarkable that, you know, to, to even, you know, when I was, uh, when I was young, it was like that if you wanted Allah to, to answer your prayers, you go and you find someone like that and you ask them to pray for you and you do, you know, it's a beautiful ethic, but that's what came from the Islamic tradition.
I'm still new in my spiritual journey, so your earlier statements today about the meaning of life shook me, adding to this notion of life being a test filled with distractions and delusions we must, that we must safeguard against. What then is the meaning to having children? Are children distractions? If you have one child, what then would be the meaning of having more? Presuming you desire more than one, is it your ego urging you or shaitan seeking to delude you into believing in the importance of this life? Um, you know, um, the, yes, the life on this earth is a test, but it must be a test led according to the Sunnah of the Prophet And the Sunnah of the Prophet was that he married and had children. And the reason for that is that it is part of our responsibility to bring children to this world and to raise them to be good Muslims. And the blessing in bringing a child to this world and raising them to be a good Muslim far exceeds the blessings of so many prayers. And, I mean, a child that learns to pray for you like I every rakah I pray I do a dua for my mother and father now imagine how many prayers I've done in my life or how many rakahs in every prayer and every rakah for now for I, I don't know for how long or long very long I do a dua for my mother and father and everything that I do that earns hasanat, the principles and values that my mother and father instilled in me, a portion of, of these hasanat go to them, other than the dua, because they have a hand in every good that I do, and they don't have a hand in any evil I've done by being the parents that they were and the way that they've raised me, they, they made an investment. And that's the Islamic outlook. You, yes, you bring children to this world, but you don't bring children um, just like that. I mean, it, it is not about an ego trip and it's not about they're cute and you take care of them when they're cute and then you ignore them when they're older or it's not about oh you're 18 years old now off you're on, you're on your own the bond between a parent and a child is a sacred bond and it's a responsibility that you carry till the day you leave this world or when you are no longer able to care for them and they care take care of you but then the, the, there's rules for that as well. And that's part of what it means when you are anchored in an Islamic ethics. You have the comfort of knowing that there are principles of right and wrong, not simply a, a, a make-do by each family on its own. Um, 
So yes, children can be a distraction, but they can, more importantly, be a great blessing and your path to heaven um, and a path to a level of closeness to Allah that is, um, is truly special. Um, you know, so don't, don't, don't just fall into the trap of thinking, oh, you know, they're just a test. No, take, their, take your responsibility as a parent to raise them as good ethical Muslims so that they do a lot of good, not just for you as a parent, but for humanity. And then every good they do, you will earn hasanat for. And that is one heck of a way of passing the test of life on this earth. A, a, a huge part of your test is to bring children to this world and to raise them and raise them very well, to take care of them um, so that they don't suffer and they, they don't have problems that they take out on, on you, other human beings when they grow up. Does the image of extracting benefit from salty waters relate to the meaning of fatr as extracting, quote, extracting or creating something from something else? Yes, that's uh, that's a really good question because that's actually um, something that so many of the commentators have noted. Um, fatr is, is uh, I'm you asked this question because I actually forgot to, to, to say this bit. Father is also alerting you to the that the nature of divinity in in this constant state of creation and action. It is not a state of apathy, and it's not a state of oblivion, and it's not a state of repose. The divine is literally fathers constantly creating. Of course, if you watch some of the shows on, um, like these astronomy documentaries, I always constantly think of Father because I I see things in in these shows are constantly going through this like what fits the word Father. I mean, the, the way that Allah seems to create everything, but that it is a constant state of motion and action. And for Sheikh Ghazali, this is the modern Ghazali who died um, in, in the 90s, um, uh, used to say that a, a true Muslim is in a constant state of action, is a constant state of the, a Muslim who's lethargic, who doesn't create, doesn't think, doesn't invent is is a complete um, uh, a, a, a complete um, what's the word that I'm looking for um, uh, corruption huh? contradiction paradox a, 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 a paradox, paradox. Uh, yeah, a, a paradox so, so that it, it can't be because the the, the 
Allah understands us to understand the nature of divinity itself as in a constant state of creation and a constant state of enlightenment. And enlightenment requires action and requires exertion. But the the idea of the, the, the even the way that the the um, the, the the reference of the Quran to the ships um, uh, plowing through the seas again it brings the image of Fatr to mind so it's uh, it's it's quite remarkable. <clears throat> Asking again in here, any questions for we, okay. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to tell you, um, on behalf of all of us, and I'm sure everybody interactive online, um, just how incredibly appreciative we are of um, of your example of kindness and your generosity in um, in resolve and perseverance, despite uh, any difficulty that comes in your way, and how abundantly beautiful and effortless you make it look, and that example is, inshallah, well taken for the rest of us. Alhamdulillah. I, my, those who those who know me know I I I'm always very awkward with praise. I don't know what to do when people praise me. And um, okay, but <laughs> may, may Allah bless you, Shayan, and may Allah protect you and. I, the the biggest form of payment is is uh, well uh, pray for me especially after I'm gone you know always ask Allah to to to, to forgive me and forgive us for my shortcomings and my faults and uh, but I, I, you know, every people need, need, you, you can't, you can tell people, sit and lecture them about knowledge and you have to exemplify something that can anchor people and so you know whether you you become that person or whether you support a person to become that person but make it a goal in your life 
because there are a lot of good, good people, but who never get a chance. I mean, I mean, I've seen very beautiful people being destroyed by oppression back home. Um, very beautiful people being destroyed by oppression. But even here in, in the U.S., I've seen people who were very, very promising because of the lack of support suffer unbelievable trials and they crack under the burden and it's unfair because with a little bit of support, they could have realized their potential. And they could have overcome the difficult times that... And... Uh, and and it, it is our collective responsibility. I mean, it, it is our collective responsibility as Muslims. And remember that this life is passing, and it passes very quickly. Before you know it, you are going to find yourself in approaching your 60s or past your 60s, and you're going to wonder where the heck did your life go. And, and then before you know it, you're going to be having discussions about do you have a burial plot or not. And it's going to go very fast. So, you know, make it count. No, God bless Inshallah, may you be with us for a very long time, inshallah. I know. <laughs> that look, okay, we'll tell the story. His mother, or he used to say that, Make that dwell for his mother. His mother got mad at him. <laughs> so, okay, um, last question that we have time for. You talked about day and night, salty and fresh water. If I understood correctly, you think we are, we as an Ummah are in night now. Do you see the potential for day? And if so, where and how do you think it can come from? Well, of course, I see the potential for day because if you believe in Allah, you have to believe in the potential for day. Um, that, that it is in Allah's hands. Allah can can change the night to day in an instant. But rationally, rationally, I believe that the okay. Where where is the potential? I, I, the fact that I teach the Quran instead of spending um, time teaching law classes um, is my belief in the future. I, I, I believe in the power of the Quran. I truly believe in the transformative power of the Quran. I believe that it might be a blessing if we either run out of oil or um, or someone invents something that then we don't need oil anymore uh, because <laughs> we didn't use that resource very well. I believe that if wealthy Muslims start 
investing in talent, scholarly talent especially, that people who are far more intelligent than I am will generate numerous ideas. I believe that if we dream of the Muslim Ummah, we continue dreaming of the Muslim Ummah, and I will say something that will scandalize some of you and strike some of you as radical, but... Um, and if we dream of being united by a the symbol of Khilafah again, I don't believe in, a, in an imperial Khilafah, I believe in a symbolic Khilafah that provides more the Khilafah whose main task, other than taking care of the holy sites, is to stand up for injustice and to defend oppressed Muslims around the world. To speak for oppressed Muslims. Not, not an imperial state, not um, an ISIS travesty, you know, all the disgusting, um, but a symbol of Muslim unity where all Muslims at least participate in the electing of representatives, like delegates, state delegates, um, who in turn pick a symbol for Muslim unity, whose task with speaking for Muslim causes and oppressed Muslims around the world, and for oppressed people around the world, and for embodying a, a creating of a council that speaks for Muslim ethics around the world. Um, I think if that dream, Allah Alam, when it might be achieved, if Allah wills, and if Allah thinks it's, you know, I pray that it, it, it could be achieved if, if Allah wills. Uh, but that's to give up on a dream, to surrender to the state of loss that we are in, is the real defeat. Um, you know, it, it is really true. Um, the first thing that oppressors do, tyrants do, is they want to kill your ability to dream. If you grew up in a, tire, in a, in a, in a dictatorship, you'd know that. The first they thing they target is your ability to dream. As long as a people can aspire and dream they're not defeated. And don't, don't as Muslims, don't let Islamophobes or Islamophobia or the Wahhabis or whatever it is, defeat you. Can continue believing in Allah's transformative power and dream of, of the day, of the morning, of, of light, because it, it is in Allah's hands. And I truly believe when we do what Allah told us to do, Allah will help us. Um, you know, um, 200 years or 300 years or 400 years of darkness is nothing in Allah's time. It's nothing. So what? And it's, it's, it's merely an interlude in, in the march of time for Muslims. Um,
Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. This was really amazing. Um, I want to just thank everybody again for a wonderful Saturday evening. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. And inshallah, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, Tuesday um, or Saturday and whenever we can. Have a great week. Assalamu alaikum.